1: Get your personalised plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Isabella Hamad on her brilliant debut novel, The Parisian. Isabella Hamad was born in London. She won the 2018 Plimpton Prize for Fiction for her story, Mr. Kanan. Her writing has appeared in Conjunctions and the Paris Review. And The Parisian, her debut novel, we're going to be talking about today. Isabella, welcome to Little Atoms.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
2: So, would you describe for us, or how would you describe The Parisian?
3: Well, um, it's a novel about a man called Midhat Kamal who is born in the Palestinian town of Nablus. And the novel opens in 1914. He's on his way to the south of France where he's going to study medicine. And the, the book is in three parts. And the second two parts are set back in Palestine after the war. The Brits are now ruling Palestine. And we follow Midhat's life during this period of turmoil as um, the Palestinians are beginning to to fight um, for, for their rights to have a nation. Uh, Midhat's a very sensitive man and he's in love with France. He becomes known in Nablus as the Parisian or al in Arabic
2: and midhat i understand is loosely based on yeah. on the life of your own great grandfather who was also called midhat so yeah. tell us something about your grandfather
3: Yes, so i i heard stories about the original midhat when i was little um he was very much loved by my father and his siblings and my dad partly grew up with him um and he was very eccentric and and uh very flamboyant kind of bon vivant and um very funny So I became interested in him, well, from a young age I was interested in him, I love these stories, and then when I was a teenager I started thinking about how it would be kind of interesting to think about this period when Palestine was under essentially Western colonial rule, what it was like to to be this man who was in love with France. Um, And there was a story about a French woman he'd fallen in love with, and I began to think, well, you know, I think this performance of Frenchness, um, this persona he inhabited, had probably had something to do with this early romance.
2: And indeed, this is a it's a you know a big weighty third person historical novel that starts, as you said, the the, the area is, I guess, under the end of the Ottoman rule, coming into the, the rule of the British. And and I guess people will be more familiar if they read a novel from a Palestinian perspective with a sort of post-1967 Israeli occupation novel. This obviously is still a, a novel of occupation, we shouldn't forget. Um, but why Tell it from that historical perspective.
3: Yeah. So, well, I was very um, keen to write about Palestinian life before the Nakba in 1948, before the establishment of the State of Israel. Um, Partly that had to do with um, a desire to portray Palestinian life before they become defined by Israel. Um, And also, it was from my own curiosity. I didn't actually know that much about this earlier period, um, and I wanted to learn about it. So that was the kind of, yeah.
2: And it also then becomes, because... Mihhat is fascinated by France. He wants to sort of, you know, he learns French. He wants to become, starts to, you know, dress in a certain way, he starts to adapt certain habits. And so, it's also a person that, in the same way, I guess, with parallels with modern Palestine now, he's searching for an identity because he's he's a person sort of caught between two worlds.
3: Yeah, um, I get, Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the novel explores in somehow, pre, in some ways, prefigures a sense of. Um, Uh, placelessness that you know um, certainly has been popularised by writers like Edward Said as a a particularly Palestinian condition, a feeling of exile of being um, you know never feeling at home. At the same time it's really about um, how little control a person might actually have over defining themselves that we end up being defined by others particularly in a circumstance like this where you know structures of of power are so um, sort of massive um, and, and Midhat is somebody who begins very idealistically, and he really falls in love with France as an equal and you know, he falls in love with the aesthetics of France with a french woman he he doesn 't really think about being inferior in any way, so it 's a great shock to realize that he actually is is um, is being othered, what you call being othered in in certain in certain respects, and that he has he's being forced into a certain kind of identity that doesn 't necessarily feel natural to him
2: now you traveled extensively in Palestine to research this book, and we 'll talk about that. In a while, but first of all, let's talk about having done that research, what the Nablus that Midhat would have grown up in would have been like.
3: Yeah, so Nablus has a very rich history. It's um, it's always been a very culturally rich, very economically rich. It's a very fertile place. It's it's far. It's called a landed port, it's very far inland between these two mountains. It's incredibly beautiful. It's a very old city. It's one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world, um, after I think Damascus and Jericho. Um, and it has in Palestinian history has always been famous for uh, having a degree of political autonomy under the Ottomans, um, you know, under the Ottomans and under, under the British and so on and. Continuing till now. Um, and it's always been you know it developed a reputation, it was called al-Nar the Mountain of Fire, um, which was it got that name because when Napoleon tried to invade, the Nabulsis set fire to their orchards to fend off the Napoleon's army. So it developed, you know, and that really continued into the 20th century, this mm-hmm. ideal of al-nar So it's this very fiery um, place, but it's also very class-based, um, kind of very, very rich in stories with these ma- major families. And the the Nablus that Midhat uh, would have been living in was somewhere where it was really a locus of political organisation at the time. So a lot of major movers and shakers in the Palestinian national movement were coming out of Nablus, even the the Palestinian women's movement that were coming out of Nablus, you know, which is interesting given that it's quite a conservative town as well. That you know, the Nablusiya woman is is, is, a, is a powerful woman. So it's got all of these elements that are very, very distinctive and it's also an cre- incredibly beautiful place.
2: Yeah. And I think you talk in the book, we may as well talk about this now, uh, about... The class elements. Mm. So while the, with the sort of period between the wars, when uh, Palestinian nationalism is starting to rise, and you know the, the beginnings of the diaspora of European Jews is starting, you also focus quite a lot on the actual, you know, the, the class distinctions in the city as well, which I found really interesting.
3: Yeah, I think this is a really interesting part of um, Palestinian society um and history that isn't really that i really don't think people know in the west at all i, I still think that there is some kind of stereotyped idea of of a sort of falah like, like a farmer you know um waving a gun or something i don't know some kind of cliche whereas there it, it, it's very very varied palestinian society and i was specifically interested in the development of of the national movement that it began with, all of these upper class people, naturally the educated elites, people who've been in the West, um, and and that then there was this class element that um, emerged when the farm when basically the peasants take over, um, and that dynamic itself it was very interesting to me. That there was a sort of you know you could put a kind of Marxist lens on it that there was also a kind of class consciousness happening. But at the same time, I
2: guess that made it easier to to other those people to make them disappear because these are just. Right, landless peasants. Yes, exactly. It doesn't sort of matter. There's not an advanced society here.
3: Yes, exactly, yeah. No, no, it was incredibly rich and ancient society, yeah.
2: So what about um, Montpellier at the time, the Midhat? So we're talking about literally the very first months of the of the second world war and, and there's discussion about who's going to go off to the north to Flanders to, yeah. to sort of fire. But Midhat comes over and, and is a, a medical student at a university in Montpellier. So tell us something about what Montpellier would have been like then.
3: It's interesting in some respects because landscape-wise, uh, the South of France bears some. It's med, you know the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. There's some sort of some similarities. You know, there's some some shared. I mean, you know, the South of Spain, South of Italy. It's kind of like something something close to the Middle East, almost. But culturally speaking, I was specifically interested in what it was like to. A, be a young man when all of the other young men are going off to war. Midhat essentially goes to the south of France because his father is trying to avoid having him um, conscripted into the Ottoman army. Um, and also being a citizen of the enemy, you know, but what does that mean? Um, and being, being seen as a Turk in some ways, yeah.
2: And then, I mean, I don't want to get too much into what happens in the story, but Paris as well. Let's talk a little bit about yeah. researching what Paris would have been like in those sort of... Febrile months in the, in the early in the
3: war. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was the, This is another interesting thing in that would you, under the Ottomans as the war. You know, it was kind of arriving in the First World War. The Ottomans became very um, xenophobic um, towards their own people. You know, obviously, you have the massacre of the Armenians, the Armenian genocide, um, and also towards the Arabs who were seeking more autonomy within the empire. And so, there are a lot of exiles, Arab exiles, who went to Paris specifically. So, Paris became this place where Arabs in exile from all over Greater Syria, so Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, you know, what well, today, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan, um, were, were talking about how they were going to get um, independence so that that was a kind of place i was interested in Midhat um uh, entering that world also the fact that it's it's wartime and it's a place of um of danger a sense of um also of exhilaration I was interested in this idea that you know a city under threat can create certain kind of atmosphere that can be also exciting for a young man um, all of those those components together i thought were interesting in the in the um development of this of this this young guy's character yeah
2: you're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Isabella Hamad and we're talking about her debut novel, The Parisian. And Isabella, I said that you travelled extensively to research the novel. Let's talk about those travels for a bit what was that like this was the first time you traveled in in the region tell us about some of the difficulties of doing that
3: so I had been in the region so I've been in Lebanon and Georgia yeah. my dad grew up in Lebanon uh, but I hadn't been to Palestine so the, my first trip to Palestine was when I began researching this book and I went with my my grandmother and we went to Amman first and then crossed the border together and went to Nablus to stay with family so it was again it was a really wonderful trip it was um, you know, meeting all these family members who I'd heard about and never met before. My grandmother had a very strict schedule for me to talk to people. <laughs> it was very, um, at the same time, it was obviously, it was exhausting and stressful and also upsetting to see to see with your own eyes, naked eyes, exactly what's happening there. So it was, a, you know, it was a heightened emotional time, I would say, yes.
2: Um, and you interviewed, I think, upwards of 80 people.
3: Yeah, quite a lot of people, yeah.
2: <laughs> Probably needlessly.
3: <laughs> but uh, it was fun,
2: yeah. Well, yeah. what sort of things did they, they... I want to basically talk about, I guess, what you heard, but also then weaving that into the into the sort of fictional novel. Yeah. How, how the sort of novel comes out of those travels. But let's talk about, actually, some of those interviews that you did.
3: Yeah. So I think that... Um, you know, only a very few actual anecdotes that I was told made their way into the novel. I feel in some ways this whole research process was almost its own project, you know, um, but also very important for me to feel that I could imagine this past time, kind of mm-hmm. feel that I could write convincingly about it, but also that it was, sort of became part of my unconscious so that it was very natural to write about this period. Obviously, most people who were alive then have now passed away, so I was mostly talking to very old people about their childhoods, their early childhood memories. And it's very challenging because, you know, memory is uh could Sometimes people can't remember things when you ask them on the spot. I often find with my grandmother, for example, I would ask her about like, for, I would say, um, "Can you tell me about you know the clothes you used to wear as a kid?" And she and she couldn't remember. She couldn't remember. And then I would hear, I, I'd leave, go back to America, and then a couple of weeks later, I'd hear from my mother that my grandmother could not stop talking about the clothes that she was wearing. You know, sort of something had been triggered and been delayed. So, so I, I often was asking about games people played as kids significant events that they could remember like the earthquake that happened or you know things that 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 uh, stick in the mind and what might have surrounded them people's relationships with their families what was happening politically and then see where the conversation went and just follow it often also i would ask people for funny stories often funny stories stick in the mind you know because they get told again and again so
2: and you're asking people for their memories of of the time but also specifically for memories of your
3: great-grandfather so
2: what did you find out about him from there
3: yeah, so I was asking my family members about Midhat. There weren't that many other people who, who knew him. I, I found out a lot of stuff. Some things that I found out a bit too late to go into the novel. I was like, my God, that would have changed everything. That explains everything, you know. But um, my, my grandmother was really the best uh, for that. She has an incredible memory and an amazing memory for detail and a um, very comic woman as well. She's very funny, very good at telling stories. And, you know, to be honest, most of the stories varied a bit. Like, I don't know exactly when he was born. People had different birth dates, different dates that he went to France different different accounts of of this that and the other, which which, which in a way and I don't have any, any documents or anything so except for photographs, so in a way that f- left me free to invent it was already sort of the stuff of dreams, so it um there wasn't really like a boundary between nonfiction and fiction in that way, it was all kind of storytelling and yeah and flexible memories yeah
2: and having then taken that trip, as I said, you know this was the first time you'd, mm. been, you'd not visited as a child, how important is that? Palestinian identity to, to you and obviously did that change having that's probably yeah, a silly yeah. question but you know yeah, having no, gone no, and immersed yourself yeah, yeah. In them, in those people's lives, how did that change?
3: So, uh, you know, I had always been my intention to go, um, and uh, from from a young age, I was, but it was always going to be this big thing, you know, to go. It was going to go after university, and then I also wanted. It was only later that I decided I also wanted to write a book, so the two things coincided. But Palestine was always very important to us growing up as kids. You know, uh, my grandmother lives nearby, and we were very aware of it and very passionate about the Palestinian cause as kids. But it's it's very different to be passionate in the diaspora and not have have been there and not quite another to go and see so um, I feel like my understanding of it changed simply because um, I understood the spatial reality much more concretely having been and obviously learning about the history I feel like actually it's pretty common for Palestinians in the diaspora not to know their history really concretely most people think about the Nakba and the Nakba is is Palestinian history and I think this Mm. is a shame you know there's 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 an earlier history um, and that, that event is obviously so definitive in Palestinian history and cast such a long shadow when I say the Nakba in case listen, so no. <laughs> um, in 1948 but um, the war of the Nakba when uh, between 800,000 and a million Palestinians were displaced um prior to the establishment of the state of Israel so that's what I'm talking about.
2: And I mean you've mentioned your grandmother and I've read in a couple of places that your grandmother is you know quite a, a fixture in the yeah, yeah. community here so what is the, the sort of Palestinian sort of expat community like in London?
3: Um, my grandmother's very involved with charity work. That's kind of her main her main beat, um, and she's the sort of matriarch, you know, known known around the place. And there are a lot of Palestinians in London, uh, likewise in New York. People sort of yeah, there there are a few around, yeah.
2: And so, having asked you, you know what to what extent the, the Palestinian identity is important to you, moving on to now becoming a writer. So you're you're mm-hmm. a novelist, and obviously this is a a historical novel set in historical Palestine, and I understand, and I'll ask you a little bit later on about it a little, but the novel that you're working on now is a contemporary Palestinian novel. And does that sort of, you know, is it is it sort of beholden on Palestinian writers to somehow represent the Palestinian cause in a way that, you know, is not necessarily expected of, of other writers?
3: Yeah, but I think there is this, this history in um, artwork and literature from the Arab world in general to be committed to um, the, the word they use is commitment to portray the sort of like political and social uh, circumstances of their countries and so there is something that is also like a, na- a native idea in a way um, but it, I think it's also a pressure from um, Western audiences to when, when from kind of non-Anglophone countries that they should be, or specifically non-Western countries um, should be representing their their countries in some way um, I don't know that I feel it as a pressure I think I, I've tried to engage with it um, intellectually in some way and, and I feel like in this novel the Parisian is also engaging with those ideas of what it means to be forced to be representative or to be forced to into a shape that you don't want to be um in as a as a as a spokesperson for a people or something I don't don't personally feel a pressure to do that um but ideas uh those ideas also interest me you know kind of like I'm interested in them creatively yeah
2: and how does that feel now this book is just about to come up as we're recording by the time this it's it it will be out for a couple of weeks, but as we're recording this, the book is just about to come out. Obviously, you are firmly in the mind space of the, of the next novel, I presume now, mm. um, but, you know, does that add any sort of additional weight, do you think, as, as you're waiting for how the book is going to be received?
3: I don't know. I mean, i kind of, uh, I'm not going to hurry the next book. Um, the next book is not only set in Palestine, it's also partly set in London, but um I just, I think that it's important when you write not to think about reception too much. You know, you sort of like have to divide your brain and not worry too much about those sorts of things because it will corrupt your sort of uh, your your uh, creative process a bit. So I'm I'm trying not to worry about it basically. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I mentioned in in the first part the idea that you know Midhat being you know growing up in Nablus, aspiring to you know to to the, the French condition, um, is a sort of torn between two cultures. Um, I wanted to talk about how you represent that in the book, in that he he has these feelings of being detached from his own body in some ways. He talks about that. Towards the beginning, there's a sequence where he talks about the first time he realised that, you know, he was the only mid-hat and his body parts belonged to him. Yeah. But also when he's on the when he's on the the liner at the beginning, you know, he starts to Feel uncomfortable he, starts, he feels a bit of an outsider and that's sort of represented in in his you know his body started to wake and him feeling feeling it, pains in his in his hands and things um let's talk about that sort of psychological condition that you that you represent in the book
3: yeah i guess that um this is one of those things where i feel like so much so much of writing is unconscious and i'm now going to do sort of like possibly wrong interpretation of my own work I'm sure your interpretation would be, be equally valid I think that it has to do with um the experience of uh, what it means to encounter difference um and to live with difference um And the the understanding that you you are in a subject position observing something separate from you, and that kind of coming to consciousness that um, that we all as human beings experience growing up. You know, as a child, you recognize what is part of you and what is not part of you, and that there are other consciousnesses walking around the world that you can't access. And so that sort of um, you know, it's a universal human. Condition uh, is complicated when when you then explore larger structures of power. What that means, what that does to difference. But Mithat loves difference. He falls in love. You know, even even you could say heterosexual uh, romantic love or all love is has to do with love of difference. You know, love of something else that's external to you, and that that it will always have complication because it is external to you. Um, we the other word of this is to do with otherness. You know, we could also talk about others, which is a, a sort of like, I guess buzzword to do with that. Um, but I think that Mithat's alienation from his body um, is is has to do with that experience as well. It's a sort of coming to consciousness and it's an uncomfortable coming to consciousness about feeling not at home in your in your own body.
2: I'll get us to finish off with you reading a bit of the book if you would, but before we do, just let's talk about what other writers have been an influence on you.
3: I really love Virginia Woolf. Well, Virginia Woolf, when I was young, was was very important to me. I I read her slightly too young, but um, I love her use of language and her um, concern with time and her use of structure, I I think, were very important to me growing up. Um, Other writers that were really important, um, Beloved by Toni Morrison, was a book that was very important to me when I was young um also portrait of a lady by henry james i tend to think of particular books rather than writers actually um as being very important to me marquez i thought about marquez quite a lot while writing this even though i don't think that you can detect that at all but i was i did think about um how he plays with time and community um and uh very much look towards him yeah there, there are a lot there are a lot of writers who probably influenced me who i'm not aware of as well <laughs> You, can you tell us any other contemporary Palestinian writers that we should look out for? Um I really like um Hala Alian. She wrote a book called Salt Houses. Her poetry is also really excellent. Um I really like um he's not contemporary but Jabra Ibrahim Jabra is really good. Um everyone should read Hassan Kanafani. Also, has passed away, but um also tremendous. Yeah, there there are there are a few, yeah. So this is this section is from Later on in the book, it's in the uh, second part. Mithat is back in Nablus. Um, I'm not going to tell you too much about what's happened, but he's found out he can marry the person he wants to marry. He flew down the mountain. Near the bottom, he stopped in the shade of a large tree and found he was out of breath. He turned his chin to the clear sky. Unburdened by the sun, he could see it glowing in the foliage above him the green leaves fluorescent like the bodies of insects. He walked the rest of the way, straightened his tie and pushed back the hair at his temples. Outside the market, men smoked pipes in the heat and he saluted their rotating faces. A slew of water appearing from the entrance to a cheese shop caught his trouser leg, splashing dark grey. It's nothing, he shouted. He could smell milk fermenting. At a crossroads, four English policemen walked by. Behind them, three Arabs, also in uniform. Rifles, cloth bandoliers of ammunition. One of the Englishmen nodded at him. His joy must be that obvious. Midhat nodded back, his love so general he could share it even in that moment with them. His thoughts had a long, smooth shape. What a city this was! He paraded down the alley, reflecting that children belonged de facto, Webs of allegiance tied their little feet to the ground, their resemblances to others remarked upon, predictions made on such and such a basis. But for an adult, though allegiances from childhood might subsist, they no longer constituted belonging. You needed something else, and now he had it. Now he would belong. The aims of his actions were clarifying, like a sturdy wall at midday. This was what was missing from his life in Nablus, How funny that he had barely a moment to recognise the absence before it was filled with the glorious flood of being known, of knowing, as he advanced towards the carpet shop. In those years of distance from Nablus, this being known was the subject of his nostalgia. How wrong-headed that was, since this feeling was not of the past. No, 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 it was of the future. That was plain. It was fantastically coherent. Everything that had happened led to the present. All the hazards of Europe, all accident and wonder... Even Nebi Musa, terrors seen and felt, all shame and pain, all objects in the corridors of that old museum, pointed towards him at this moment. Yesterday he could not have teased his desire for her from the other strands, from his father, from the need for what was denied, from the need for a woman. But with the prize virtually in hand he could see it all. That was a solid wall ahead of him. It was the foundations of a house. He had obeyed, and he had defied. He was of them, and he was his own.' He with his strong body had laid the first stone and others had seen it. They had seen it and with him foresaw the edifice that would now arise.
2: So I've been talking to Isabella Hamad. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Parisian, which is out now in the UK from Jonathan Cape. Isabella, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you.